0: Go!
1: Sniper arrow on the
0: guard. It strikes true. The guard drops. I move to the doorway. Detect traps. None detected. I enter.
1: Left flank. Right!
0: One hobgoblin facing east. Backstab! Double damage. Crickle hit. He's dead. Footsteps behind the door to the north.
2: I notch two arrows.
0: I climb the walls to get above the door. Five goblins enter from the north. I fire! arrow's hit. Cleave! You kill one and wound another. I drop on the last one and grapple. You got hold of him. This one is for Crouton. With his dying breath, he utters, (laughs) The Dark Lord!
1: we we'll kill
2: you all! Wait, these things can talk? I want two taken alive. I want to try something. It has finally happened. We're going to talk about Dungeons and Dragons. Welcome to Let's Roll, the show where we discuss various role-playing games with guests and fellow tabletop gamers. I'm Siskoid, and if you're wondering which edition of D&D we're going to talk about, We're actually not going to talk about any single edition. I thought it'd be more interesting to discuss D&D settings rather than rule sets. And today we're talking about one of D&D's most established worlds, the Forgotten Realms. And so I've assembled a small panel of guests, including one of my players adventuring in the realms and a dungeon master himself. Dungeon mastering in the realms. Fred Melanson. Hi. Thank you for having me. And a good friend from the podcastosphere who is running an online game in the forgotten realms right now. Mr. Jonathan Schaefer-Hames.
1: Hail and well met, Sisgoid. It's a pleasure <laughs> to be on your show. Before
2: we get into it, uh, the Forgotten Realms themselves, this world, let's talk about our general histories with the role-playing hobby and how quickly D&D came into it, since we're going to talk about D&D. So, Jonathan, let's start with you. You know, you, you've you been gaming for a long time.
1: Yes, I have. I've been gaming since the early 80s. Uh, I think I was about nine years old, and D&D was my introduction to it For I mean, from a time when basically D&D was almost all there was. Uh, but I, I played basic d d basic experts, and then basic expert companion, transferred to ad 1st edition, and then moved up through second, third, fourth, fifth. I played all of them, played a lot of other games. I, I like all of them, all of the different editions in, to various degrees. Really like fifth edition Currently running an online game with uh, fellow podcaster Clinton Robinson, who I understand it's his fault I'm on this show. Yes. <laughs> All right. Man will do anything for experience points. <laughs> yep, yeah, but we're currently running that. We've been doing that for about a year now and uh, shows no signs of stopping.
2: That's cool. And, of course, I'm... Stuck in a game with Fred. By stuck, I mean the pandemic kind of put a stop to it because it was something we did all together around a table. So we stopped a couple years ago now and it's sort of stuck in limbo. But Fred, where does it start for you, this journey? Actually, the role
0: playing game starts with the Lone Wolf Choose Your Own Adventure books.
2: Okay. I don't know if
0: that counts. But like it's the kind of – you did have your character sheet and you could carry your character over from book to book. So that's kind of where like in elementary school, I really started my fantasy role-playing D&D similar-ish type of, of uh, gaming adventure. And then I got into D&D. Like, I got the tail end of 2nd edition, then got into 3rd. Then I learned that there were a lot more games out there than D&D and a lot more systems than the D20 system. And I explored, and now I'm uh, I'm just open for any kind of
2: uh, game I can get my hands on. As for me, D&D is both my first game and not at all my first game. So <laughs> it was a matter of, back in the day, it was just impossible to find gaming product. So all I could get was a couple of books here and there whether it's the original Advanced D&D was my first. So it's uh, the the original Monster Manual and the Deities and Demigods were sort of books that I bought at a Toys R Us when I was visiting Montreal. Before getting on a plane, you know, to go somewhere. So th- these were just books to read and have fun looking at and even color. But when I got into gaming itself, it was around ninth grade, we didn't have any books. Somebody gave us like these hand-me-down dice. Like the numbers were all filed off, basically. They were from a- one of the basic boxes, I remember like this older kid. But then we just sort of made up the rules based on the D&D books I had and a couple of gaming books that I'd gotten from the science fiction book club. <laughs> and it's, uh, It was all over the place. And it wasn't really, we didn't, we eventually converted to something called Arcanum, sort of the ancestor of Talis Lanta. If, I, I'm saying words, but eventually we converted to Pure AD&D second was the reason I started buying product, and gave all my AD&D first edition books to my brother, who I hope still has them because I kind of, I kind of I wish I, I still had them myself. Second edition became the my game of choice, and I never converted to third. I in fact think the D20 is wretched as a system, <laughs> so I never converted. But you guys are also working with D&D fifth, I'm guessing. Like in your current stuff? Yes. Yeah. So you're very current. Uh, I've heard good things about the fifth edition. I'm just not going to be buying any more product at this point in my life for a game I don't run a lot of. Because like Fred, I discovered other systems and I got into them. I I think I got tired of Sword and Sorcery after like four or five years, teenage years of doing it. And so I kind of left it behind, but I keep coming back to it. I, I guess I'm in a campaign right now. It's just unresolved, and uh, eventually we'll resolve it. I guess we'll we'll, we'll fix it. But it, is, it does take place in the Forgotten Realms, which is the setting that we wanted to talk about today. And uh, it's got a certain cultural footprint. Uh, you know, it, it owes its popularity to the fact that D&D, or uh, at the time, TSR, now Wizards of the Coast, uh, really put some money behind it by producing a series of novels and a series of computer games. And uh, so I'm wondering if uh, you also know the setting through those outlets.
0: Yeah, definitely. Like I've, uh, I've definitely read some of the novels uh, by uh, Ed Greenwood And Arya Salvatore, I've played the games, Baldur's Gate, all Neverwinter games and all that stuff. So yes, I've definitely experienced the Forgotten Realms through other medium. It definitely helped the realms get more popular.
1: Jonathan? Uh, Me too, yes. Actually, I believe that I encountered them through the books before I actually bought any of the products because I hadn't bought the box set at that time. I bought got the Dark Walker on Moonshade book. Um, I was a big fan of the Dragonlance books after being a big not-fan of Gary Gygax's uh, Gord the Rogue books. I enjoyed Dark Walker on Moonshade. It was definitely a different sort of thing, and it felt like a brand-new, interesting world. And then from that, there were the Drist books. also played the video games. Uh, we, I had the Pool of Radiance, old school that way, as well as the the sequel to that one, and then, of course, the Baldur's Gate series, things like that. I I have the um, updated version of that, which I I have on uh, on PS4 I still play.
2: Because my pool of Radiance was on Commodore 64.
1: Mine was <laughs> an Apple IIe.
2: <laughs> so it's the same era. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it, it took, like, so many disks. You had to switch <laughs> disks all the time. It's like computer games that evolved to a point where, no, this machine... Isn't really the best to play it, <laughs> you know? It's, it's time for, we we need new machines. This is no
0: longer the best
2: medium for this game. <laughs> exactly. So, so it never really replaced being around a table, you know, and, uh, and, and playing it freeform as, as we do with role playing games. I remember having many of those books as well. The, uh, Crystal Shard was the first one I remember with, with Drist. We mentioned Drist because, uh, he became a sort of, poster boy for... For edgelords. Well... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the Forgotten Realms, because he was he was a character you couldn't play, you know, basically, because yeah. he was a dark elf, uh, which already is supposed to be an evil race, but he was with the good guys, and kind of a ninja, you know? He, that's, yeah, he had, you know, had two swords, and he, he was, like, the essence of cool, so you never could play such a character, or I mean, you could bug your game master... For you to play such a thing.
0: Apparently, Vin Diesel only plays dark elves when he plays D
2: Like he. I've heard that. Yeah, it's now more possible. But you know, back in the day, there was like many more restrictions. It wasn't quite possible. So I remember those I, those books are missing. So like any book that I don't have now, like I have all my books from when I was a kid. So it means I lend them out. Like been, I was thinking about this since like I lent them out and somebody never brought them back. So that's what happened to that. Shame. I have an
0: extra copy of Crystal Shard if you want
2: it. Like I don't want it because I remember, <laughs> even at whatever age I was reading it, uh, late teens, that uh, it wasn't very well written. It is, is a bit this rough. Is too much. Stylistically, not great. You know, I was more interested in the world and the characters. And I do have all these heroes in miniatures that I painted. And I might put some of those pictures on the website at firewaterpodcast.com, along with some of the material, the gaming material that we're going to talk about. So people have something to look at. Okay, so let's talk about that setting. Just give you some basic facts about it. What are the Forgotten Realms? Uh, they are the brainchild of game designer Ed Greenwood, who had used it to tell childhood stories back in the 60s. The Forgotten Realms then became an official D&D setting in 1987 after showing up in Greenwood's articles for Dragon Magazine since 1979. A and second edition basically chose it as the primary D&D setting, a new setting for a new edition of the game, I guess. The premise is that... Long ago, planet Earth and the world of the Forgotten Realms were more closely connected, and as time passed, the inhabitants of Earth had mostly forgotten about the existence of that other world, hence the name. And if that doesn't sound familiar at all, it's because TSR removed the the whole notion of gates between our world and the realms, uh, apparently to avoid kids looking for them in real life and getting hurt. That's some uh, weird shade Uh of satanic panic there. Uh, it, it would go on to become probably the most popular D&D setting, and the game's publishers, whether TSR or Wizards of the Coast, have connected it to other settings in some way. There's a way to reach the Forgotten Realms from other places. To describe it in the quickest way, imagine that on the planet Toril, there is a huge continent called Ferun, which contains, or is adjacent to, many cultures either fantastical or akin to the ones from Earth's own past. And of course, it's D&D, so it's a world of magic and monsters through which your adventurers travel. So that's basically the realms. I don't think I've described them badly. I guess the question is, what to you is the charm or value in using the realms as your setting, as opposed to the other settings at the time, which would be the world of Greyhawk and Dragonlance? Why has it become the default
1: D&D setting? One correction on that description, though. I think they have gone back, and now there are... Um, it is implied that there are portals again oh. um, between our world and there. In one of their recent products, Tales of the Yawning Portal they have a, a, just like a poster map of all of these various realms characters sitting around in a bar including Matt Mercer who is the dungeon master of the critical role, who who um, helped uh, with some of the design of that and so they, they let him be there. So apparently Matt got there somehow. But <laughs> as to your question, um. You know, the realms did, it took over from Greyhawk as the, you know, basically kind of generic fantasy world, as it were, and less so Crin. They're all sort of, uh, you know, at least in their primary aspect, they're like a medieval European middle-aged setting. I think what it was basically going on was that once Gary, that was about the time Gary Gygax had left the company and they wanted to break as ties as much as they could, but Due to a couple of lawsuits that was going on and various other things, so they were, they broke free from Greyhawk and and went off into the realms full speed ahead. I think the staying power of it is that Ed Greenwood's had so much backstory that he brought to it, and it it just seemed fully formed as opposed to like the previously they had tried to do this with the Dragonlance books with a or, or setting or adventure modules and the books and various things with various degrees of success, but that kind of felt like it was being created as it was going. Whereas this one really felt like you were dropped into a real place and they had a lot of varying cultures, you know, that were, you know, it's like, here's the Aztecs and Mayans, but in D and D, you know, here's, here is an various Asian cultures, but in D and D and there's a lot of detail there. And if you're looking for basically any sort of, basic high fantasy thing, you're going to find it somewhere there. And it's going to have just enough detail to really, you know, get you up and running more so than in some of the other ones. Whereas Greyhawk just kind of begins and ends with the Western European style thing. The realms really, does embrace the other sorts of cultures and and makes it their own.
0: I definitely agree. And I think that for me, it's that lived-in world feel, which I think is caused by the fact that when it became the official world and they did that big marketing push to have the novels and all that stuff, then that created lore and made this world feel lived in it has legends it has different cultures and different world views based in this world and and that made it popular at the time and then the fact that it became popular made more people want to play it in it which made more source books for it which kept populating this world so now it's not the default medieval feel sword and sorcery it's the Anything is possible in this world, sword and sorcery. you can play any type of sword and sorcery game in d and d you can play you know you can play an african based uh, adventure you can play something in the middle east you can play something in asia you can play something in in a north american native American type thing because it's been popular and people have been creating these things for it. You could even make something where Let's let's say the, the Monster Hunter movie that they came out with the, where you have a, a team of soldiers come into this weird world. You could do that now because our world is somehow connected to Forgotten Realms. So you could bring a team of mercenaries from the U.S. Army into the Forgotten Realms through some weird portal and they have to adapt if that's what you want to do. It's – It's a world of unlimited possibility.
1: Another interesting thing about it from an overview standpoint is uh, because of the length of the Drisk series mostly is the reason for this, that it's gone, started in first edition and is still going on and has not let up during there. They made a decision as a company, much like the DC universe, that every time there's an edition change. They have to explain the edition change in-universe. Like from first to second edition, they had the time of troubles to explain why there's no assassins anymore and all of this stuff. And then when from second to third, they they had their own other change, which I'm not familiar with. And then to fourth, they shot the timeline forward and made everybody mad. Fourth to fifth, they had the sundering where they they said, just kidding, it's – Now, still in the vance, but here's all the characters you liked before they're back. Okay, great. But they always have a series of books to explain it, which I always found, you know, amusing just as a fan of, you know, crises and various other DC events like that. Mm -hmm. I always uh, thought that was really fun.
2: Yeah. I was a kid when I was being Dungeon Master. We were definitely doing in the style of Greyhawk, even though we didn't really know it. It's just, that's just what the art in all the books, kind of told you to do, like kind of inspired. When I started picking up Forgotten Realms stuff, I didn't know what to do with it because it seemed so much more outdoorsy. So I've always looked at the three main settings of the time as different elements of D&D. So that Greyhawk was Dungeon's uh, there was a dungeon under every keep. It was sort of about going down into dungeons. Most of the, a lot of the adventures were very dungeon-based. Greyhawk itself was an outgrowth of a dungeon, of Castle Greyhawk. And, uh, you know, like first the castle existed with the the, the dungeon. <laughs> and then, oh, what about the town around it? And what about the world around it? You know, it was sort of how it evolved. Uh, and Dragonlance was the dragons. In feeling, it feels a lot more like, a world like Lord of the Rings, where if you're going to play, like, Merp is that game. If you're going to play in the world of the of, in Middle-Earth, where you got to have to be on the sidelines somewhere. You're not, you know, you're not the Fellowship, so what are you doing, and when are you doing it? Are you finding holes in the big saga to adventure in? I felt like Dragonlance was a bit like that. It seemed like it wasn't just a fully formed world, necessarily. It was more like it was a story. And your characters kind of weaved in and out of it. And so Forgotten Realms was the hampersand, was the, what, what is it? <laughs> the advanced. I don't know. It, you know, what part of the title was it? So I was kind of shocked a bit by it. Eventually I, I grew up and I kind of understood it better. But what I liked about it was the variety of cultures, the different fantasy elements that we could bring to it that were just not trapped in the mock middle ages uh, and we could do more with it. I'm all about variety and moving to, you know, trying to do many things and bring many products to bear. So the forgotten realms were much better for me. It just wasn't just all samey across the line. So I agree with you there on all of that. I'm wondering what parts of the, Forgotten Realms, you visit it, because the campaign that we're running in now, which is heavily modified D&D, where everybody's a bard, but we're also playing it with modern music, with the YouTube right there, you know, the songs have spell power, and characters are on tour, and having to face things that, they'd be plots for Jim and the Holograms almost more than, than than for a a normal (laughs) D&D party, and it's it's great. But of course, it's, it's not normal D&D. We're just using the Forgotten Realms as, as the backdrop for that tour. The, like the first leg of the tour, or the first season, we went from Waterdeep. We did do a little bit of Viking stuff up north. And then we went round the Cormier and all of that and back to the Sword Coast. And then the festival at the end was in on Mo- in Moonshae, which is their islands. They're like Celtic islands or Druid islands. They're Britain and Ireland, you know, basically. So, and that was the first leg. And then the second season. And this is the one where we've stopped. We actually went east and east gets you through Eurasia, basically, or that equivalent, because we go through what like the box that's called the Horde. So Mongolia, Tibet, India, China, eventually they're heading for Karatur, which is what they use for Oriental adventures. Uh, that's the name of the product. And it's almost. Not the Forgotten Realms, but it's kind of all attached to it. And so there's like a fake Japan, China, or I say fake, but fantasy version. And that's where they're heading. So we get to do a lot of different cultures. That's that's what I'm doing with the Forgotten Realms. Fred, what about you? You're in that campaign, obviously, but you're also running your own campaigns.
0: As a player, I've been to like TAN, which is what's the Horde Lands. Karator, Ferun, obviously, because that's the main developed one. Zakara, which is more like a, a deserty, hot climate, African, like Sahara type thing, maybe a bit Middle Eastern, Morocco, that kind of stuff. The Shining South, Schulte, which is like very jungly, like the Amazon more. Mastica, which is like on a separate continent altogether, and it's more of the Mayan and uh, Central American cultures. I haven't really been the northeastern continent, but I've been in most of the...
2: And what do you do as a game master?
0: As a game master, I've I've explored a bit, but now I mostly stay in Faroon in just because that's what I'm confident in. This is the area that I know most, therefore I can play in it more like i know the boundaries and and then i can just play in it once once you know the limits of the play area you can pretty much do whatever you want in
2: there yeah well you say area but it's it's gigantic (laughs) like i i divide it up into realms like to me the realms are all the little countries within that that area yeah
0: okay so then the sword coast would be the main area but i'm not afraid to like move around to adjoining countries just to kind of throw off my players a bit and show them something new and let them explore new cultures and and new horizons, I guess. Like, if they're they're especially used to a certain type of game and a certain type of setting, when you open that a bit, they're like, oh, okay, so we can do this as well in D&D,
2: and that's really cool. What about you, Jonathan? You're a sword coaster?
1: I have been a sword coaster, yes. Um, I mean, (laughs) I've been... Playing around in this since first edition, we actually started out playing because we we transferred them over. We had some like really high level characters in Greyhawk. But then and when the Bloodstone Pass (laughs) series came out, which was one of the first things converted to Forgotten Realms, we wound up playing there. And that's up in Vasa up in the upper north. It's not much real culture to it. It's just a snowy place where a lich lives. And then there were Dwarger and Orcus worshippers and whatnot. And while in college and second edition, we had a rather extensive campaign in Cormier that was a lot of fun. It was very, very knights and chivalry oriented. That was kind of cool. Uh, recently, my, a recent one since fifth edition, uh, my wife Maggie and I uh, take turns running Campaigns. We've done several in the Sword Coast because that's where the Mines of Alver adventure, which, by the way, if anybody if we are convincing anybody here to want to try to play in there, that is an amazing place to start. It's a great adventure. <laughs> uh, that one takes place throughout the Sword Coast region, and it has a very wild westy feel to it. You know, there, there are cities, but they seem very far away. And they're just small towns and there's problems and you're the ones who have to deal with them. She ran us through Tomb of Annihilation, which takes place in Chult. And right now I'm running one for Maggie and Clinton Robinson and our friend Sebastian. And that's taking place in the Icewind Dale region where Drist and company are from. And that one's kind of a it's kind of a fantasy Alaska northern canada basically it's like fishing and mining villages way up north uh supposed to be people that are trying to get away from the rest of the world and in the current situation it is completely cut off from the rest of the world and the, also there's a spell cast over the thing where um, the sun hasn't risen in three years that's been a load of fun <laughs> they're not gonna like next week's game it's not grim at all. It took what was already a grim place and dialed it to eleven, and added all of this Lovecrafty and horror stuff to yeah. it, and John Carpenter things. It's it's pretty fun. That's cool. I mean, for me,
2: because we did we did play in Icewind. We had like one of those bard games in Icewind Dale or around there because Fred's character is from like the sort of Viking north of the Sword Coast. Uh, So that's where we played our Christmas special.
0: Our Yule (laughs) special.
2: Our Yule special. They had to find some Yule logs and it was pretty fun. Which kind of brings us to to characters because I I mentioned Fred's character, a Viking drummer. (laughs) He's from that area, but other characters from other areas, I think like Waterdeep is a great giant city where all the cultures can easily meet. It's like, it's, you know, it's the Forgotten Realms, New York or London. So I want to talk about characters. Uh, What is it, you know, how do Forgotten Realms, player characters and parties differ from those of other settings? So once you've decided, okay, it's the Forgotten Realms, how does that affect character creation, party, composition? What happens in Forgotten Realms that is unique to it? What flavor is in those characters that isn't apparent necessarily in Greyhawk or whatever.
1: I mean, there isn't so much difference per se. You know, I mean, a Greyhawk character and a Forgotten Realms character, you could swap worlds with them generically, and they could probably um, fit into place. The thing about the realms that really can make the characters shine is that there is so much detail in all of the different areas and so many um, different places you can be from. You combine that with the fifth edition of the game that makes backgrounds such an important part of the character's makeup. It, it gives you certain abilities depending on what your background is. But because the realms are so rich, you know, story wise, that those backgrounds can really sing and it really gives you an advantage right off the gate. Like if you're, if you're a Harper, if that's your, your background is you're a Harper, you know, there's so much information about the Harpers and you probably, if you've chosen that, you're probably familiar with that. So you know what to go with, or if you're from, if you're from Icewind Dale or Cormier or any of those places that I've really found, you know, whereas in Greyhawk, yeah, you can be from Greyhawk, but you know, what does that, what does that mean? It just means I'm from generic um, Lankmar ripoff city. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I love Greyhawk, but that's what it is. I thought you were going to say I love Lankmar. But <laughs> I love Lankmar. I love Greyhawk, but <laughs> probably for the same reason.
0: Being from Greyhawk just means that the adventure takes place in or around Greyhawk.
1: Yeah, there's, in Greyhawk, there's a lot of different countries, you know, and I can even name some of them, but I can't tell you. There's like Fury Undy. I can't tell you anything about it, you know, whereas Cormier has very specific, you know, very flavorful things that are very distinct from other things. And if your character is from Cormier, they're going to act in a different way than if they're from Baldur's Gate. If they're from the moonshay Isles, they're going to have a much more Celtic, Druidic feel. If they're from from the Dale lands, it's going to be much more of a like in an Ed Greenwood book a much more yeah. simple folk sorts of hobbiton. things hobbiton right exactly they're from right. the shire yeah <laughs> exactly
0: <laughs> uh, what about you fred i think that there is nothing cuz like your question was like essentially what can you do in forgotten realms that you can't do anywhere else character
2: well i would say that you could in, in any game you know, you could say, yeah. I can do anything, I can ignore things, I can focus on things. But games are written in a specific way, I find, that inspire you towards something. So while you could go against yeah. the grain, what is with the grain?
0: I would say, in Forgotten Realms, I'd say nothing. That's, that's what's so cool about it. You can do literally anything you want, mm-hmm. and it makes sense within this world.
2: And I think that's actually a difference... From what we had before.
0: Yeah, yeah, like that's what I mean. Like, there's, there's no, there's no character that I can make in Forgotten Realms that I can't make anywhere else. But it is the all-encompassing fantasy
2: world. Right. So I, I would think that anything goes. Like the big difference to me in a like the party composition would be that. If let's say we are in Greyhawk or Kryn, these worlds are pretty homogeneous or fairly homogeneous. Mm-hmm. So the characters are going to be like from similar culture or all from the same culture or a very similar culture and be the D and D tropes basically. But in Forgotten Realms, you can have you know characters from a wide variety of lands with very different philosophies and cultures and even ways to act out their particular role. So, uh, like for me, like you're talking about the like the backgrounds in 5th edition which is really selling the game to me at, at this point. <laughs> like that's that <laughs> seems to be one of the most interesting things about it. Playing as a second edition game master. You know, I was buying a lot of those products and one of the things that he added in second edition through a number of player's handbooks called well, each role had its own handbook. So there's a, a, a fighter's handbook and a, you know, a ranger's handbook and a thief's handbook. And there's a handbook for each of the classes. These gave you something they called kits. And kits were a way to, to sort of... Make broken characters. Well, better define uh, <laughs> the type of fighter you were. I think fighter is the best of the books because when you think of fighters in D&D, it, it sounds so nondescript. Fighter,
0: (laughs) I hit things with sword. I hit
2: things with weapon. That's it, you know. But you know, in in our cultures here on Earth, throughout history, we've had so many different types of warriors. So kits are like that. So you could be, what if you you want to play an Amazon? What if you want to play a cavalier? You know, chivalrous cavalier type. What if you want to play a samurai? What if you want to play a savage warrior from the some more primitive place, Beast Rider, which is probably one of the broken ones, you know, stuff like that. So there's so many different ones. The idea is that to fit those kits, you need lands that fit those mm-hmm. types, and Forgotten Realms gives you that. So in other mm-hmm. words, somebody could say, I'm looking through the book, I'm looking through kits, and say, oh, this, you know, a very specific to, to a culture, warrior or mage or priest or whatever, I want to play that. Okay, fine. Forgotten Realms has has you covered. You can come from this land, has this culture, has this religion, has this type of whatever you wanted. And then there are places on the map where they might meet, where it makes sense that they might all be there. You know, just like on Earth, there's there's places where people congregate. There's hubs. There's hubs. And then you've got a party that can be, like, very, very diverse Whereas in other D&D types of the day, that was not necessarily easy to do or you had to, you had to really bend the world to make that happen. You know, I know everybody would go, oh, that player always wants to play a thing that you can't play, you know, and people are resentful of that player. Oh, everybody has that player. Oh, it breaks immersion. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but this... Or, or verisimilitude, I think is the word. Yeah, it so breaks, this
2: right? you can actually do it. So I think a Forgotten Realms party can be more diverse than parties from the other worlds that exist. So I would say that's the flavor. A mm-hmm. Forgotten Realms I, party
0: can look like anything, whereas even, a, a Dragonlance party will look like the Fellowship of the Ring.
1: Exactly. And I'd say even more so now with the realms, because they've basically brought back kits. They just they call them subclasses now, mm-hmm. and it's every every character class has that, and a lot of them are specifically tied to two realms areas you can you've got your knights of myth or your Harpers, things like that and you like we were saying before you definitely have a lot to go with in order to flavor that out for yourself mm-hmm.
0: and i feel too that with the years the forgotten realms has started to incorporate things from like different campaign settings for dnd like the famous uh, planescape wheel is now kind of also incorporated in the Forgotten Realms mythology of how the planes work. So, if you want to go dragon hunting like in Dragonlance, you can do that. If you want to go dungeon delving like in Greyhawk, there are dungeony places. So, it's just the everywhere of campaign settings.
2: Speaking of characters, I'm gonna to try to get some of your character sheets to put on the website because people have told me they like that. Like sometimes it's, it can seem abstract how a game looks and feels. So I'm going to put up some of the character sheets, at least Fred's, and maybe if um if Jonathan can convince Clinton or or Maggie to to put their characters up, I'd be happy to put up the scans. I myself have found a character that I've played in The Forgotten Realms in second edition. This is back in the early 90s. I can't believe I kept this sheet at all. <laughs> I found it jammed in between two pages of a Forgotten Realms product. And it's kind of sad because I've just been going on and on about all the various cultures and you can do anything and diversity. And my lame ass bard here comes from Cormier, which if you're, if you want to play Greyhawk in Forgotten Realms, Cormier is not a bad place to start. (laughs) What was fun about it though is, again, a bard. I don't, I have always had that fixation, I guess, leading us to a campaign of only bards. But, uh, in this case, he was attached to a paladin, was like my best friend at the time, was playing a paladin in this campaign. I joined the campaign and, uh, we didn't play for long, but this character would be basically, I would write up songs or poems. So anytime that he would do like his songs to boost the morale or whatever, it was always going on and on about the knight and how great he was with a a few digs in there, probably if I know myself. So I don't have any of the, the songs left, but, we played so seldom because, you know, it was another game master, because I never play. So it was another game master. I was chipping in, helping out, and he'd found these players who only spoke English and himself was a Quebecer who didn't speak English very well at all. So he sort of wanted friends there to boost his confidence. I don't know how he found them, but one of those people, we were playing at his apartment. I was soon told, no, we can't play again because that guy is in jail. So... <laughs> It's not a murder or anything. He lied on a job application and couldn't pay the fine or whatever. Anyway, that ended that campaign. But I still have this character who managed to get up to level three. So you can see how we didn't get very far with it. I'll also put this so we'll have a second edition character sheet on the website. What next? Well, we've talked a lot about some of the products whether in 5th edition or 2nd or whatever, but are there products that you would recommend to people? So, Jonathan, you mentioned that uh, adventure. Uh, the Lost
1: Mine of Phandelver? Lost Mine of Fandelver, yes. It's a box set. It's an intro set. You can get it both on D&D Beyond and pretty much everywhere. I saw one in Walmart today.
2: Oh, wow. Are yeah. there other products from Forgotten Realms, any edition at all that, that you would recommend and say people should get this?
1: If you can get your hands on it in a used bookstore, or I know it's available on like Drive-Thru RPG or DMs Guild, either PDF or print-on-demand, the first Forgotten Realms box set is pretty great. Even though it's first edition with a little bit of second edition bleeding into it by that point, it's very um, stat-light and it's a great overview of pretty much everything. You know, that that was available at the time. You know, you're not going to get a lot of your newer stuff that they added on with with Mastika or the Horde or anything like that. But it gives you all of the countries, the cities, and it's just down to little just gives you enough information in order to either like look for to say, yeah, I want to play here and then look for other products to maybe supplement that or gives you enough of stuff that is just great for um, ideas to go on your own. So that's a great way any of their editions where they have their basic setting books is is worthwhile if you're into the realms. The 4th edition one less so just because it's so much different than everything else even though there are some useful things in there particularly the waterdeep. The waterdeep the city system box set that's also that's a second edition product. That's pretty great for really telling somebody things that are exist in a fantasy city. Things you wouldn't consider and you can use as much or as little um, detail as you want to. In 5th edition, the uh, Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus is pretty great for details on Baldur's Gate. And the Waterdeep Heist one is great for Waterdeep itself. Any of those are good. The Realm's products have always been pretty good. That's something you usually can <laughs> judge on this cover. I can't think of anything too terrible on that. I'll, You'll probably get comments later and said oh yeah what about this but those those are great places to start
0: yeah i totally agree the realms source books are really good even the box sets for second edition really good most of the fifth edition adventures take place somewhere in the realms so they'll have like maps area maps and information on smaller towns like jonathan mentioned the lost minds of phandelver which is the basic rules box set for fifth edition like you get character sheets dice a rule book and an adventure really great product if you're looking to start both in the realms and fifth edition go for it it's it's an absolute blast to get to know that little northern area of uh, the sword coast Uh, i'm a really big fan of the third edition campaign setting of forgotten realms there is a bit more stat blocks in there because they they do stat like the legends like you got a stat stats for elminster stats for drizzet and those guys that's not important what i really like is you get like the maps you get descriptions of the different cultures from different areas what their money is like and, and the exchange rate between them and that's that's really cool because it explains like the economy of a certain place like this area deals more like in in spices and textiles versus this area is more like ores and and raw materials with that, you can kind of get a feel of what it must be like to live in these places.
2: Sounds like Catan is a uh, forgotten realm, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, I, I had a lot of product, mostly the source books, because the adventure less so. I've got a couple here just in my hands. What I loved about the regional source books is that they each came with a piece of the map. And it was at one point I wanted to really like lay them out on the floor and have. Faroon as the, as big as possible, but then they're all they're not all in the same scale. Some are, but yeah. not all. The one thing I don't like about them is that they are printed on some sort of parchment-looking paper, which sometimes is a bit dark. So you got black letters on a like a dark brown wavy kind of paper. Uh, I thought it was a, a bit too much but uh, I appreciate the effort, certainly. The ones I'm looking at here is like Moonshay, which is, okay, it seems like a Northern European, you know, Western European culture. That seems like Greyhawk stuff, but it's so nature-based. It's so, we can see how Celtic culture is completely different from chivalry. You know, that that's sort of a Middle Ages culture. One that I've never used but wanted to was Old Empires, which has the, like the Egypt mm. and the Greco-Roman, uh, the Babylonian kind of, places, which speak to me, and it's like, okay, this is a completely different kind of sword and sorcery, sandals and sorcery, you know. So I wanted to do that, but never went to, and it's like Fred went to all these, the Antipodes, you know, which are almost like different games in different settings, like Masteca and all that. So all of that seems very interesting to me, more so than the more Western European stuff. The one product I wanted to bring up is pre- Second edition. Uh, I know Jonathan's going to get a kick out of this. The, the, the adventure is the Throne of Bloodstone, <laughs> which is a which says for characters levels 18 to 100. And it was basically yep. you went down into the, the abyss. Your characters are such superheroes. I think the first encounter is a fight with 100 demons, and, and then you go down into uh, the pit basically, where you have to eventually fight Orcus, which is a a duke of hell, uh, not of hell, of the Abyss. So this adventure, the story I have for this is that there's like this older game master when I was a kid. So I'm a teenager, he's probably a young adult, but he seemed like he was 40 to us, you know. And uh, he was game mastering on the side. I went to play in one of his games once, it was terrible. It's him and his players playing rules lawyers and picking up books and you know arguing about every little point, it was just so boring. One day he comes to the house where we played, I don't know what the connection was, but he was kind of gloating about the Throne of Bloodstone, where he, he wouldn't say what it was. It was just like, like even though I've never played it, it was so famous because he was going like, you know what the deadliest module is? And I went, Throne of Bloodstone? You know, probably from something I read in Dragon Magazine or something. It was just so famous as this hundred-level adventure that I eventually I had to get it just as a collection piece and I never get really managed to play it. But I think you did right, Jonathan, you were telling me about this earlier.
1: Yeah, we played it. If you can call it that (laughs) Uh, we went through it. We played the, um, the bloodstone Pass series, which before that, when there were three, three of them, one of them was a, like a battle system one, which was more, you know, dealing with armies, but they were all levels 15 and up and just dealing with really high level stuff. And we got, we played through to Mines of Bloodstone, which was right for it. And that was kind of the end of that campaign. And then Throne of Bloodstone came out and we looked at it and it was like, well, this is ridiculous. We're not gonna take our characters through there. They'll get killed. But they had um 100th level pre-gens in there. Yeah. So we played those and went through and, and played it. And we played it over the course of, it was either a long weekend or just one really long night and it was just essentially okay now you're gonna fight these guys okay these guys and we just kind of played it and faced everything until we were all dead a good time was had by all but you never reached orcas we we did not no <laughs> i think i think demogorgon got us there's a bit where they had his city of a hundred thousand demons attack us and i think that took most of us out eventually but not easily that reminded me though uh convention i went to this one guy decided to have an event in third edition third edition was doing all of these return to those yeah yeah they had like return to ravenloft and stuff Re-
2: return to temple of elemental evil and they, they were going to yeah exactly
1: he decided to do a return to the throne of bloodstone designed it all out and then realized close to the end that he um forgot to make pregens for everybody so calls his buddy and guilt's his, his buddy to to pregen a bunch of hundredth level third edition D characters and i don't know if you've played third edition with the epic stuff they get broken at 21 <laughs> um so he makes so so the guy was so mad that he made him do this he spent a week and made the most busted 100th level characters that you've ever seen to the point they started they took it started the adventure and won it in about 10 minutes with the various um ridiculous abilities that they get at that at that level
0: yeah like the epic level of handbook from third edition, I always took as a tongue-in-cheek, like, <laughs> okay, congratulations, you beat the game, now you can do whatever the hell you want. Mm-hmm. Um, rules for balancing on a cloud and swimming up a waterfall, you can do what you want. Once you reach level 21, if you want to do it, you do it. You yeah. don't need dice anymore.
2: Well, my players, when I was a teenager, would have been, you know, that homebrew system was so broken. That they would have been quite, quite comfortable with this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, you, you did mention that the, like the realms were different from edition to edition. And, uh, so mm-hmm. just, just to cover that base, if I may, third advanced the timeline by about 15 years. So those people know what happens. And then fourth edition advanced it another hundred years by saying a spell plague changed whole nations and creatures. And, uh, it fused Toril with another planet. Hey, a The Underdark where the Dark Elves live and all that, was exposed to the surface and becomes a nightmare land, I'm guessing, Mordor. The elves return in force. So that's a completely different world at that point. And then 5th edition showed the aftermath of the Sundering in which the two worlds of fourth were split, creating a new paradigm that was more recognizable. But I'm guessing a little more volatile politically, so making it more of a wild west, well, a wild frontier. Am I right?
1: Very much so, I would say. The one thing that they really did is they have downplayed all of the NPCs that used to be pretty ubiquitous, especially in second edition, just mostly due to the sheer amount of books that were there, especially the Harper series, which was really popular. It got to the point where the joke became, well, why? Anytime there was any sort of adventure that seemed to be world-threatening would be, why are we bothering doing this when you could just call Elminster or dritzed? Those guys, while still being around, actually, I don't even know if Elminster is is around anymore. Those guys are around, but they're definitely thought of as just being legendary and off doing their own legendary things. Your characters are definitely the heroes who have to stop the thing. The political stuff is not as cut and dry, and it's a lot more as you, as volatile and things. And there's a bunch of new new situations going on that the characters can then get to be a part of. So it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, everything feels a lot more Seven Samurai Samurai-y than the mm-hmm. United World Star Trek: The Next Generation. Let's say, uh, okay. <laughs> the Forgotten Realms in Fifth Edition is pretty much like ripped apart and in the process of rebuilding itself.
2: Right. So the borders are more flexible. Yeah. Here's the the big question I ask every show: What lessons have you, us, we learned, uh, either as GMS or as players? from this setting
0: i learned to roll with it when a player wants to do something that's outside of what i anticipated because of the openness of of the forgotten realm i'm not saying no i'm saying okay cool how can we make this work you want to make a a cat person sure let's find out where this fits in the forgotten realms and you know find a way to get you from point A to point B and fit in this adventure. Instead of going like, "Mm, no, that doesn't fit with the tone. Everything fits with the tone now. And we're just going to work together to make sure that everybody can essentially do what they want and have a good time.
1: What about you, Jonathan? Yeah, a lot of that stuff too. Especially, I really learned, especially with the newest incarnation of it and, and these last few campaigns I've done, I've really learned of the value of using... The world as a resource to make your characters and your NPCs and your adventures more interesting. For example, in the in the adventure we're running right now, um, Clinton's character he's a fighter with the noble subclass. I, I you know and I could have just left it at that. Okay, you're a noble, you're snooty, you're an Dale. But I was like, okay, let's let's figure out what city are you from? You're from Waterdeep. Let's look up Waterdeep. Let's find out the nobility of Waterdeep. Okay, here's this family then let's see you then there's this other family here we're gonna say that that that's a rival family and then and then that allowed me to create an npc you know that was a member of that rival family that had been up there unknowing to him attempting to do the same basic quest that he was because it i had enough information i was able to really make that seem like something there was a lot of detail in there it really sung out to clinton and then that became what you know, Clinton became hyper fixated on much of the point. And it wound up derailing the adventure completely a couple of times, which is great. That is for anybody who, who hasn't had this experience. It's the best thing in the world is, is when you actually have to, when the players get the feeling that they are driving the story rather than just playing a part in yours and the realms and, and it's details, the detail of it and the fact that I've been playing it, it's off and on all my life has really helped that out.
2: At the time, it got me out of my dungeon mindset and try to make other types of adventure work. And of course, this was working in tandem with other uh, other games, DC Heroes RPG in particular, because superheroes don't go into dungeons normally. Suddenly, investigation and interactions and court intrigue, you know, the game inspires you to that because the setting is so diverse and not necessarily pointing towards dungeon delves all the time. So I think that's what I learned from it. Well I guess that's the Forgotten Realms. If you enjoyed this, I'd love to do shows on some of the other settings sometime. Uh so if you're a spelljammer or a Ravenloft or a Planescape GM, let me know. Woohoo. Yeah, I I think some of these guys might come back. Uh <laughs> so for now i want to thank my guests Did you say spell jam? i did i did say that i want to thank my guests fred melanson and jonathan Schaefer Hames. how about you guys tell the folks where they can find you for your other projects if any fred you can find me on my couch most of the time if someone's looking for a dm i'm always willing to start
0: a new game but i don't have any i don't have much online presence through podcasts and whatnot.
1: But Jonathan, you do. I do. have got a few of them, which we are now put under the banner called M. My wife and I, my podcasting partner and I do uh, under the banner of MWC podcast, which stands for married with comics or married watching cartoons or Maggie wants cookies or whatever else we can try to shoehorn that acronym into. <laughs> we, uh, we cover a lot of things, mostly comics related or cartoons We also do a show called The Rod Pod, where we cover the IDW Transformers Phase 2 comics in order. We've been kind of slacking off on that one, but we're about to get back into that. Uh, Maggie and I also appear over on the Longbox Crusade with Pat and Delvin, where we do Transformers Chronicles the Marvel Years, and we cover the Marvel Transformers comics in order as well and um also this these last couple months i'm really getting my uh my punch card punched uh for the fire and water i'm on i think almost every show so if you liked me here you'll hear me um elsewhere on this feed and if you don't i'm sorry you still will you still hear me (laughs) uh so
2: i'll let you two uh go back to your wanderings and i'll be back after the break with game master advice and your feedback on our previous episode thanks again
1: hi john hi maggie
0: i'm still wrapping my brain around the fact that we're married
1: (laughs) me too but i wouldn't have it any other way oh well hey i was looking at these old comics and i noticed that there's a
0: thought why don't we talk about it on our podcast
1: We have a podcast?
0: It seems like the logical next step. We get married, we change our names, we combine our comic collections, we start a podcast about comic books.
1: Well, I can't fault your logic, but there are plenty of podcasts out there already. Do you really think we'll have anything new and interesting to say?
0: Oh, I think we'll manage.
1: So join us at the Married with Comics podcast, where two newlyweds with a love for comics intelligently, critically, and thoughtfully discuss comic books.
0: Also listen as we goof around, make jokes, and make fun of John for mispronouncing names.
1: I do that a lot. The Married with Comics podcast. Available directly on our site at marriedwcomics.lipson.com, on iTunes, and wherever good podcasts are found. If
2: I were Dungeon Master, I'd have it made. What an interesting proposition. Very well. I shall give you all my power to use as you will. It's perhaps the preferred d d model, but other role-playing games certainly follow it. The traveling party of adventurers, usually in an episode-filled picaresque. They move from dungeon to dungeon or fly a starship to the stars, but they've got to keep moving lest the Game Master be forced to somehow bring the adventure to To them. Now, that latter concept is a legitimate way to go and and is my preference in later years, allowing me to develop a strong supporting cast. But it's not always practical when you're maybe using published adventure modules or want to use that cool setting to its fullest. So, at some point, I watched a number of road movies and I started thinking about this facet of role playing. What can we learn from the best? road trip movies. Now, why are you on the move? It's a fair question. Why are the PCs moving around so much? I've run campaigns where no one ever asked the question, because the answer was, because that's the format these adventures take. But you owe it to yourself to do better. The characters are probably like migrant workers, looking for opportunities for coin and experience. Maybe they're like students, out of college, backpacking through Europe. Nothing wrong with a wandering spirit, but in that case, Are they planning on returning? Is home your true destination? The starship from the earlier example might be on a mission to explore and report back. Or are the PCs being chased by someone, the authorities, an angry father whose daughter has been jilted, a powerful villain seeking revenge, a toxic environment encroaching on one's fertile homelands? Are the characters part of a race? And it it doesn't have to be the same for each character, obviously. Sometimes there is a clear destination, a specific quest, but even if you're just going to wander the game setting, a focused motivation can give the story momentum and open up interesting avenues for role-playing. Who leaves and who arrives? The same characters, hopefully, but will they be the same people? at both the start and the finish line. The point of most RPGs on a player satisfaction level is to increase in experience. The rookies leave home and come back heroic veterans. Or is that really the story you want to track? As a player, you might want to change it up and angle your choices towards different outcomes. Let's look at specific road movies here. Thelma and Louise sees two women embark on a crime spree and reach the literal end of their characters. Where could those characters go once they cross the point of no return? Nebraska and Chef are about fathers and sons connecting in a meaningful way. Is that something your characters would be interested in? I've had players play three brothers. We've talked about this on the show before. Two of them estranged with the third trying to keep the family together. Their relationships were the real journey, no matter where they actually went together. What lesson does your character need to learn? That's a good starting point for imagining where they might end up. Now, you've heard this before, the journey is as important as the destination. Well, when there's a specific destination, let's say Mount Doom, it would be easy to design the journey as a straight line of challenges on the way there. But you should allow your players and yourself to take detours, to stay in one place for a time, or even not have a clear destination at all. Obviously, this depends on the reason for the journey. Don't pull a Frodo and wait a year before going off to destroy that ring. Uh, That stuff's important, you know? The point I'm trying to make is that the journey itself can be its own point. In movies like Tracks and Wild, a young woman sets out to find herself by undertaking a dangerous trek through a wilderness. Do the characters want to be tested? Are the players brave enough to start out as ciphers and let the journey mold them into full-fledged characters, or dare I say, persons? Each experience and choice building that character? But here's the thing. When it's not important, fast forward. If the destination is all that important, and in some scenarios, that's surely the case. Don't be afraid to skip ahead. Sometimes all you need is a plane jetting off and a plane landing elsewhere. Or screw that. All you really need is a shot of Paris with a card that says Paris, France. And hey, you don't even need that last part, do you? So go where the story is. If it's not on the road, we don't need campfire strategies or the random encounters. Just the card saying some weeks later and the characters are where the action is. In other words, it's not always a road movie. Now, I could go on and then give you a list of all my favorite road movies, which I haven't mentioned yet or alluded to, but that might take too long. And Anything from Mad Max Fury Road to National Lampoon's Family Vacation fits in there, including movies like Gravity and Interstellar, which don't seem to be road movies, but really are about travel. For extra credit, when you watch one of these road movies, ask yourself why the characters are on the move, and how they're changed by the experience. And maybe you'll find the key to your own picaresque campaign. Now some of your comments on the last episode, which was about Pendragon, the role-playing game of Arthurian romance, with my guest Gene Hendricks. Just a few comments here. Brian Linton says he's actually heard of Pendragon before, which... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was new for him on this show, I guess, uh, and had some understanding, he says, of the basic concepts, but Gene's breakdown of the gameplay was particularly interesting and informative. Cisco, and I have to say, this was a real masterpiece of planning, coordinating the episode with the Green Knight and the, a drive through RPG sale that was going on in September that actually had some Pendragon books. He says, nicely done. I don't think I planned it out so well. It's just a big coincidence. He also says, I also like your idea of multi-generational campaigning. It reminds me of my favorite classic RPG video game, Phantasy Star 3. The game spans three generations of heroes with the choices you make in one generation affecting the characters you have available to you in the next generation. And he ends saying, I'm off to pick up a copy of Pendragon. So job well done, Gene Hendricks. Because Gene and I had talked about play-by-email gaming, which we'd done at some point, Uh, Rob McCarthy came in to say that he's running a gangbusters game by email right now. So that's still going on. It's not just us nerds. the fire and water podcast network has a patron page at patreon.com slash fw podcast if you like this content and want more like it think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation let me also remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the fire and water facebook page or on twitter where we are fw podcast my thanks again to my guests fred Melanson and jonathan Schaefer Hames, and until the next episode let's roll